0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 240, Henry in Ireland and Wales. Before I start, let me briefly remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a smorgasbord of independent podcasters. To find out more, go to agorapodcastnetwork.com. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about lordship in England. We talked about how Henry and Cromwell aimed to bring the nobility into a different relationship with the crown, not to break them or remove them, but to focus their attention on court and the patronage provided by the crown to tie them to the crown in a way that provided both a source of service to the crown and reduced the potential for rebellion. We then talked about how this worked perfectly reasonably in the core of England, but was something more of a challenge in the massive border regions. We looked at the north of England, and the impact there of a more direct relationship between crown and region. So, given that Cromwell was reasonably successful in bringing the north into this new structure, despite some less than happy consequences, I suggest that this time we look at the other two borders Henry had within his kingdom, Ireland and Wales, and see how it went for him there. Let us start, shall we not, with Ireland, and let me apologise profusely for the Gaelic words I'm going to slaughter The last time we visited Ireland was back in the days of Henry VII when, in summary, after a bit of dithering, Henry VII, in effect, decided to rely on the power of the Fitzgerald family, the branch which had held the great earldom of Kildare. Gerald Moore, the great 8th earl, had essentially ruled Ireland in the Yorkist fashion as a deputy of the king, a great regional power. Henry VII had appreciated the cost and difficulty of any alternative strategy such as direct rule and was sensitive to the difficulties Kildare himself faced in maintaining any kind of peace. His son, Henry VIII, however, was to be considerably less sensitive. We have mentioned, I think, the division of the peoples in Ireland into three. The Gales, Irish-Irish if you will, the descendants of the old Norman invaders, the Anglo-Irish, and then the New English in the towns in Dublin and the Pale. It would be helpful, I think, to understand the different model of lordship that prevailed amongst the Irish-Irish to appreciate some of the issues that drove Irish politics and a lack of understanding on the part of the English. Lordship amongst the Gaelic-Irish had noticeable differences to the English version. The essential concept of sovereignty lay in the name, the surname of the lord, and signified the lord's personal headship of his own kin and the headship of their clan. So, at the inauguration ceremony. The new chief would be named captain of their nation. Succession was not by simple right of inheritance or primogeniture. The best choice of ruler was made from among the family, best usually meaning in this context most powerful. So there'd be no minors inheriting. Progression from father to son sometimes happened but was by no means assured. Now obviously the benefit was to avoid the rule of the incompetent or those dangerous minorities but in general it played against stability. It was an enormous temptation to celebrate the death of a chief by a bloodletting between different claimants and it's a temptation which often won out. Chiefs tried to knock the edges off the potential chaos by appointing a tanist, a nominated successor and sometimes that would work and sometimes it just meant he'd be the first person up against the wall by the man who pipped him to the post. It was made more difficult in that each clan would hold a number of septs or family groupings and different septs would have their own leader who might be claimants to the headship of the clan as a whole. And so, the potential for internal war was multiplied. To the Gaelic lord, both land and people were his and they held enormous power. And in the end, the ultimate test of lordship was the ability to exact dues and payments from the lord's dependents. At the end of the 16th century, the Gaelic lord Niall Garve O'Donnell had a conversation with the English commander of Derry. The county is mine, and I will use and govern it to my own pleasure. Let the Queen do with her rights what she will. Inishoen in is mine, and were there but one cow in the country, that cow would I take and use as mine cow. The point is that the powers of Gaelic lords were wide and deep. Taxes, or cuts, could be wide and arbitrary. Since there was no cash economy, this would be in payment in kind, and the heaviest imposition was something called coin and livery, whereby the lords' men were billeted on householders. Greater lords came to rely on mercenaries for their households, no longer summoning their free subjects to war or arming their peasants, but instead using gallo-glasses, or axemen and kerns, Irish foot soldiers. And so coin and livery exactions became harder. And since lesser lords could tax as well as higher lords, if you were at the bottom of the pile, life was pretty tough. The legal system to which all were subject were the ancient Brehon Law Codes. Though once English kings had tried to extend English common law throughout Ireland, it was a dead letter outside the pale. And anyway, no judges had been sent into Ireland since 1400 from England, and you can hardly have effective justice without judges. Every area, then had its own judge, a brihon, from a hereditary lineage of jurists who heard cases in public. The principles on which the law was based was very different to English common law. Where in English law sanctions were applied to the guilty individual, brihon law applied its sanction to the kin. And resolution came not by punishment applied to the person, it came from the property of his kin in the form of compensation. An offence might well be taken to have been against the individual's protector, or lord, and then the lord must offer satisfaction. If the lord refused satisfaction, the result could be feud and local war. Bréhon law was respected and widely observed, but began to retreat after 1541 when Henry changed the relationship with the Irish by declaring himself king, which we'll come to. Critically, though, lordship was not restricted to a closed and defined territory, but in a complex of rights, tributes and authority, which might extend beyond land officially owned by the Lord. So the O'Neills of Tyrone demanded tribute and services from the ecclesiastical tenants of Armagh, even though it was the church that actually owned the estates. Overall was the demand for payment for protection, or slantiach. Slantiach allowed lesser septs and chiefs to appeal for protection from greater lords, not their own. And in border areas, such as around the Pale, protection was particularly important. And for the Lord, for their protection to be effective and for their ability to collect payment to be maintained, Slantiacht had to be defended fiercely, because if a chief found the protection ineffective, they might well change allegiance to find a more effective protector, and the result would, of course, be disruption or even war. By the 16th century, Gaelic Ireland was marked by great Slantiacht networks and which dominated its politics, and the trend was for greater Irish lords to become stronger at the expense of the lesser lords. Overlordship without ownership rested on the power of the lords to enforce submission on the part of the lesser lords, and so those such as O'Donnell of Tyrconnell imposed a military supremacy, and where they could, imposed their own candidates as chiefs of the lesser lordships. We noted the last time we spoke about Ireland that the English, the new English of the pale and towns that is, and the English back in England, had little understanding or respect for Irish traditions or culture and saw them as simply barbaric. They condemned the system of lordship, which seemed to them to make lords tyrants and tenants slaves. And English commentaries on Irish lordship was little less than hysterical by the end of the 16th century. If you are looking or hoping for greater comprehension of Irish society by the English, you will look for it in vain. The increasing concentration of power into a smaller number of Irish lords may have begun to offer some greater stability. One observer identified unprecedented peace so that far more fields were tilled rather than holding cattle, which could be easily driven off. However, some other historians have noted and concluded that the system left Gaelic, Ireland divided and therefore vulnerable, and it's a bit difficult to disagree with that. No lord held greater power in Ireland than the Fitzgerald Earl of Kildare, which brings us back to our story. Henry VII had recognised that to have any kind of cost-effective rule in Ireland, it was Kildare that offered the only option, that he was far more likely to succeed than any of their Anglo-Irish rivals like the butlers. Essentially, Henry had accepted that Ireland was borderland, and that just as the Norman kings had accepted that Wales needed a string of powerful, coherent and autonomous lordships to contain it, Ireland needed the same. By the time of his death... The great earl, the 8th earl of Kildare, had built on this concession. He had created a network of power greater than any since the time of the High Kings of Ireland. Some of this was built on landholding and his numerous tenantry. Some of it was built on the great earl's creation of a powerful standing army maintained by his tenants in the finest tradition of coin and livery. Kildare himself and his successor, very clearly identified their relationship with the Crown and the office they held as Governor of Ireland or Lord Deputy of Ireland as absolutely fundamental to their strength and identity. When the Ninth Earl came into his inheritance in 1513, on the death of the Eighth, he protested to Henry that if his allegiance failed, it should be the destruction of me and my sequel for ever. The troubles that were to come did not derive from a Kildare desire to be autonomous from the King of England, It came from a challenge to their status as the king's supreme subject within Ireland. Maybe the best indication of the extent of Kildare's power was that his was the greatest of all Slantiach networks. There were something like 60 different Gaelic lords across Ireland, and 24 of them were recorded as owing Slantiach to the Kildares. It's an illustration also of a feature of borderlands and marches more generally, These are not hard borders, often with barbed wire fences and gun emplacements. The lines are fluid, connected by changing ties of lordship and conflict. So in the north of England, Dacre met, talked and negotiated with the Scottish lords. And it was for this, actually, that Cromwell was to accuse him of treason. But the reality of life on the border was different. Negotiation, developing relationships that crossed the border, these were effective methods of defence. The same was true in Ireland but the cross ties here were deeper and more complex. English and Gaelic aristocracy intermarried. Kildare applied Irish and English law as the situation demanded. Many Irish tenants rode with the Kildare's army. Kildare's network of Slantiach meant that the Kildare's were integrated into the weft and warp of the political nation, an indivisible part of it. It meant they were uniquely capable of exerting pressure on the weak and divided Gaelic lordships, but at the cost of Henry VIII's trust. Looking from Henry's eyes outward, it looked awfully as though they'd gone native. And there was no way on earth, despite multiple visits, that the Anglo-Irish Lords of Ireland could fulfil the role as a service nobility, a court nobility. If they did, their power would quickly be absorbed into the Irish soil and disappear. Anyway, the great earl died in 1513, his son, Gerald O'g Fitzgerald, Gerald the Younger, had been brought up at the Tudor court. Whatever the impossibility of permanent attendance at court, all the Anglo-Irish lords, Desmond, Kildare, Ormond, felt themselves to be part of Henry's nobility, and they were an integral part of English politics. So one prime example is that struggle for possession of the title of Earl of Ormond, which moved from Butler to Berlin to Norfolk. The Ninth Earl of Kildare, as he became, was appointed Governor of Ireland, Lord Deputy of Ireland, almost by right, and for five years he profited from the eager new king's laissez-faire attitude to the world, allowing this lord from the periphery of his kingdom to run affairs, as the Kildares had become accustomed. Not that it was all plain sailing. Henry's suspicions grew of the extent of Kildare's might and power. Accusations were made at court that Englishry in Ireland was being swamped by the Gales and Kildare wasn't helping and he wasn't helping the butler heir achieve their inheritance as he should as Lord Deputy. Plus, it he wasn't helped by a bit of stirring from the Gaelic lords themselves. In 1520, O'Donnell warned Henry that if he gave the governorship of Ireland again to the Kildares, he might as well resign his lordship of Ireland to the Fitzgerald family for ever. At one point, forced to return to England, Kildare came close to being accused of treason. But the quarrel was eventually resolved in the traditional way, with the ninth earl restored to the king's favour by the help of a marriage to Elizabeth Grey, the king's cousin. Elizabeth, by the way, has something of a life, and her daughter would be an even more powerful political figure. I've not had time for it all here in this episode, but if you are a member of the history of England, there is an episode on Elizabeth waiting for you, and her daughter, who became known in a sonnet as the Fair Geraldine. If this makes you want to become a member, just go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member. Over the next 10 years, Henry made some attempts to mix things up in the governorship. At one point, Norfolk was appointed Lord Deputy of Ireland. It gave him a straightforward view of the situation there from an English point of view. This land shall never be brought to good order and due subjection, but only by conquest. Norfolk was succeeded by the butler Earl of Ormond who survived as Lord Deputy only for two years because the period underlined that Ireland was different, that there was simply no way Henry could effectively replace one lord with another or with members of the gentry as he was to do in the north of England and in Wales. The networks and relationships prevented it, there was no gentry in the same way as there was in England and there was no one that could even touch the income and power of Kildare. Their income, at £1,600 a year, dwarfed all others. And was precious little by way of a central standing army and Ormond could therefore not rule without Kildare's support. The result was a running war between Butler and Fitzgerald. The Fitzgerald family, by the way, is the surname of the family that held the earldom of Kildare, should I be confusing you. So Butler and Fitzgerald were summoned to court in London to argue and answer. Now, Kildare was a player. While they were there, on the one hand, Kildare professed his loyalty to Henry and flattered with flowery words and fine protestations. And though there were no cause, yet could I find it in my heart to serve your grace before all princes of the world. He claimed this was because of Henry's nobleness, prowess and equity. And besides that, I do know right well... If I did the contrary, it should be the destruction of me and my sequel for ever. Meanwhile, though, he sent home one of his daughters, Alice, who carried a message to one of his Irish affiliates, the O'Connor of Offaly. And as a result, O'Connor ran riot in the Pale and on the borders of the Pale. It's a joy, really. It's velvet glove, iron fist stuff. Dear Henry, believing my protestations of loyalty might be a good idea, because if you don't, Ireland will burn. Kildare was right to be confident on this occasion. Henry blustered a bit, but Kildare returned as Lord Deputy with a seething ormond, nursing his wounds and his resentment at his side. Enter Thomas Cromwell, bearing his determination to destroy these marcher satrapies by whatever means necessary. In his view, direct rule needed to be pushed through with greater determination. The first thing then was to construct a case against Kildare, evidence to remove him, and with the help of the butlers, by 1533, Cromwell was ready. By then also, Kildare was in failing health, shot in 1532, and he never really recovered. In September 1533, then, Kildare was summoned to England. He sent his wife and pleaded pressure of work, ignoring also the king's command not to transfer royal artillery to Kildare's own castle at Maynooth. But Cromwell would not loosen his grip, And in 1534, Henry forced Kildare to follow his wife to London. Now, what happened next is a matter for some argument, which is a good thing, of course. A bit of disputation is always nice. Kildare left behind his son, Thomas, Earl of Offaly, a man bearing the nickname Silken Thomas. It is a good name, is it not? There was some surprise that Kildare gave the job to Thomas, of all his sons, actually, because he had a reputation as young and willful, and most to this time, ordered by light council. But anyway, in June 1534, Silken Thomas rode through Dublin with a strong company of horse, wearing silken fringes on their headpieces, which gives you an idea of where he got his nickname from. He proudly surrendered his sword of office before the council at St. Mary's Abbey, formally defied the king, and denounced royal policy. From there, Silken Thomas started to act against his enemies, which included the Archbishop of Dublin, John Allen. The Archbishop knew he was in trouble and tried to run, but was turned back at the ports. So he took refuge in his castle, but it did him no good. He was dragged out in his shirt and falling on his knees in front of Thomas, begged for mercy. This turned out to be a poor strategy because he was immediately killed. One tradition has it that this was indeed Thomas's command Another was that the killers mistook his command in Gaelic. Either way, an archbishop had been murdered. So I spoke of disputation. The question is, was this the Earl in London trying the same old strategy again, this time ordering his son to do what O'Connor had done last time, demonstrating the extent of English helplessness? Or was it, in this case just an overweening arrogance and self-confidence, headstrong and foolish son that took things too far in his overconfidence. Whatever the reason was, the Ninth Earl would not see the outcome, dying in London of his illnesses in September. In Ireland, Thomas took the sinews of Geraldine Power into his hands and he wound them tight. As the network shivered, his Gaelic and English lords came to his command, O'Brien, Desmond, Conbach O'Neill... O'Connor. He declared Henry a heretic, he sent an embassy to Charles V, who cynically strung him along to keep Henry distracted, but offered little practical help. Thomas, no doubt dazzled by the assembled power of the tool created by his father and grandfather, enjoyed some initial success, bringing the pale to his side and besieging Dublin with 15,000 men. But when William Skeffington, the new English governor, arrived, it all fell about his ears distressingly quickly. Dublin was relieved. The Kildare home castle at Maynooth was captured in 1535 and Thomas fled, taking up border raiding with O'Connor, which wasn't really to his liking. Even the assembled Geraldine might could not resist the Tudor campaign army, which, incidentally, cost Henry a meaty 40,000 quid. So, Thomas had a tete-a-tete with another new governor, Leonard Grey. Leonard Grey was his uncle-in-law, if that's a thing, his stepmother's brother so maybe that should be step-uncle? Whatever. Leonard Grey was vaguely related to Silken Thomas, is the point. Grey offered Thomas his life, and Thomas duly surrendered. Another miscalculation, sadly. Grey argued hard for his promise to be honoured, but Cromwell, Norfolk, Henry would have none of it. 75 leaders of the revolt were executed. In 1537, Kildare and five of his uncles were executed too. Two half-brothers... Gerald and Edmund, sons of Kildare's second wife Elizabeth Grey, survived. Gerald fled into Ireland, there to foster revolt. The removal of Kildare created a very dangerous situation and enormous political instability. Because what had happened was that the Kildare network of relationships, patronage and protection had been ripped out of the system. Suddenly, lords saw violent opportunity, or with their protector removed, feared destruction, and everyone had to start again, had to start creating new relationships. It's very unlikely that Cromwell understood all of this complexity, though he would find out very quickly there were no possible direct replacements for the Kildares. But then Cromwell was more ambitious than that. Now he could rebuild, he thought. Now Ireland could become like Wiltshire. Well, I exaggerate. But now Henry would rule through the Lord Deputy in alliance with the English in the Pale and, get this, with the Gaelic lords themselves, or that was the theory. And at the same time, the English Reformation would be implemented, and hey presto, they've got it, Wiltshire across the sea. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1537 then, Cromwell has the act of absentees passed, taking Irish lands off the Duke of Norfolk and Berlin and into crown hands given they were absentee landlords, giving them a bank of patronage to use, the use of which he was to be accused of bribery and corruption. He encouraged new English families to settle in the Pale and attempted to improve the administration. In 1537, all the acts of the English Reformation were implemented in the Irish Parliament, and the dissolution of monasteries and suppression of relics and images gathered pace, initially meeting little resistance and much support in the Pale and Leonard Grey went on campaign to coerce the Gaelic lords to submit. Grey was pretty relentless, with pretty limited resources. And in 1539, the War of the Geraldine League broke out to offer the greatest resistance. It included the Fitzgerald heir, but also leading Gaelic chiefs, men normally implacable enemies coming together, O'Neill, O'Connor of Sligo, O'Donnell, and they planned to inaugurate O'Neill as High King of Ireland. At their back, friars and priests denounced Henry as a heretic, because outside the Pale, the Reformation quickly stalled and was widely ignored. Monasteries carried on, and religious practice carried on in the same old way too. Already then, Evangelical Reformation became equated with Henry and with England, and therefore became equated with resistance, and it provided a powerful rallying cry. But at Bellahou, the Irish were defeated by Grey, and by 1540, Fitzgerald was in exile in France. But despite the seeming English success, continuing revolt demonstrated that a new approach was needed. Essentially, as ever, Henry and Cromwell were not prepared to continue to follow the strategy of conquest because they were not prepared to pay the price. And given that they had rejected the idea of devolving power to a local great lord, there was but one strategy left, and that was conciliation. The most innovative element of the whole policy was that strand of bringing an alliance between the crown and the Gaelic lords. The argument went like this. Given that the removal of the old systems of patronage had caused bloody chaos, given that true peace and integration under an English king will only come with English law, let's replace these different lords and protection relationship with one supergiver of protection – the King of England, and so was born the strategy of surrender and regrant. Irish lords were told they had the option of giving up their lands and rights to the King of England or the Lord of Ireland. He granted your lands back to you under the terms of English lordship and law and took you into his protection. By the time surrender and re-grant got going, Cromwell had gone and, outrageously, Leonard Grey had gone too. I know being a Tudor minister is a dangerous prospect, but really Grey's execution for essentially being suspected of not trying hard enough to kill the Fitzgeralds was a little unfair, or it seems so to me, anyway. But from there on in, the surrender and re policy was pushed through by the new Lord Deputy, Anthony St. Ledger, for off and on, well, at the next 25 years. He negotiated, cajoled, begged, pleaded, threatened to implement both Surrender and Regrant and the Reformation Acts. And he won some genuine successes, some apparent successes and some abject failures. But Surrender and Regrant did have the potential to succeed. It did offer the prospect of stability, at least, an end to the complexity of the networks of protection. And if the Crown could enforce the peace, maybe it could gain acceptance. It was a blessed complicated process, though, swapping one form of lordship with hundreds of years of tradition behind it with another. So, for example, the submission of one Irish lord did not necessarily mean that all their septs had to agree to the submission that he had made, so were those septs committed or not? The principle of primogeniture was slow to be accepted and led to disputes about inheritance. And then in 1541, Henry declared himself to be king of Ireland rather than lord as he had previously been. Along the way, he declared that the basis of his right over Ireland was no longer the grant by the Pope, which had been the legal basis for England's overlordship of Ireland to date. Now it was to be right of conquest. I like this little fat It brought it home to me how different is the world we now live in and how important is context in history. No one nowadays would think that proclaiming legal right by conquest would settle any arguments. In Tudor times, it was deemed a reasonable one. The battle is to the strong and the race to the swift, essentially. Now, I've seen this declaration dismissed as cosmetic and irrelevant, mere words. But I've also seen the argument made for a deep significance, because Ireland now had a king who'd never been acclaimed, anointed or bound by coronation oath to his subjects, who never visited there, who would always prioritise his crown of England over the crown of Ireland. Ireland was forever denied her autonomy. But for the moment, a succession of great Gaelic lords did come forward to give their allegiance to the new King of Ireland. Brian Mac Macgiola Padraig came the first Irish lord to take his seat in Dublin Parliament as Baron Upper Ossory. and if I've not butchered that name, I'm a Dutchman's uncle. In 1543, Murrah O'Brien, Prince of Taumond, became Earl of Taumond, and so on. The question has to be whether they considered that move terminal and irrevocable, after Queen Mary succeeded in England, many were to return to Catholicism. Others may have hoped, like the O'Neills, that they could reconcile being earls of Tyrone and also chief of the name. Would the many Gaelic chiefs who held back at some point submit, or be forced to do so? Only time would tell. Which brings us to Wales. Here also was a society based on the concept of different laws and customs and a border, But the outcome of Cromwell's policy would be very different. Wales had a population probably of around 250,000 in 1500, and since the days and laws of Henry IV, she had been living under a system similar to that of Ireland, in that the English and Welsh were clearly separated physically and in law. The English occupied mainly the towns, the Welsh held their own law. This sounds as though it might be perfectly equitable, but in fact, in practice, the Welsh were second class citizens because they were disbarred from doing things like buy English property, they had little chance to thrive in the wider polity of Henry's kingdom. Along the edge of the principality remained those marcher lordships, relics of the age before Henry I's conquests. Fast lordships, where the king's writ still didn't run, where lords exercised rights of both land and justice, who were franchised the royal authority. Henry VII had owed much to Wales. He was born there and used the Welsh dragon among his symbols. Throughout his reign, he blurred the old lines, willing to see the Welsh prosecuted before English courts, for example. And of course, one of his great supporters had been Welsh, and ensured in his invasion was not crushed at the first landing, Rhys Ap Thomas. Rhys had been duly rewarded and richly rewarded. He'd been made a knight of the Garter, a member of the King's Council, Governor of Wales, justiciar of South Wales. His son Griffith was a companion of Prince Arthur, was with Henry at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. But disaster hit the family with the death of Griffith in 1521. So, before his own death in 1525, the paterfamilias, Rhys ap Thomas, tried to ensure that his grandson, Rhys ap Griffith, would be installed as his heir in both land and offices. Notably, he made an alliance with the powerful Howard family, earls of Surrey and dukes of Norfolk, of course, when he landed a marriage between the young Rhys and Catherine Howard, the sister of the Duke of Norfolk. But when Rhys Ap Thomas died at the unusually satisfying age of 76 in 1525, Rhys was but 17 years old, and Henry VIII refused to instate him as the successor to old Rhys Ap Thomas, and the offices were instead given to a man called William Ferrers, Not sure Why? It could have been Rhys's age, or it could be that, like Kildare, Henry had no wish to encourage a family to become the effective lords of all Wales. Rhys didn't take this well. Honestly, I'm not terribly sure why I'm telling you all of this, except that it caught my eye as a story, so I'll keep it brief. Rhys and Catherine were not the sort to back down gracefully, and I say Rhys and Catherine advisedly. They complained vociferously to Wolsey, they took the fight to the Ferrars, Though in the process causing plenty of outrage locally. In 1528, this all came to a head with a series of running battles between the affinities of Ferrers and Rees, until on the 30th of June, Rees was arrested by Ferrers, at which point Catherine raised their tenants and marched on Carmarthen and forced Ferrers to release her husband. By 1531, however, Rees had finally and completely lost the game executed in 1531 on probably specious charges of treason for trying to claim an ancient kingship of Wales, which seems a little unlikely. Catherine would remarry, miserably, unfortunately, and eventually join the household of her namesake, a.k.a. the Queen of England. She would be one of those who had a deep influence over the actions of Queen Catherine. She was indicted of treason, interrogated in the Tower, a process she seems to have handled with more than a little self-confidence and panache. Now, I just don't have space here for the full story. So, if you are a member, I have done an episode where I talk more about Rhys and Catherine Howard in Wales and then go on to cover Catherine Howard's life. She turns out to be a rather exceptional Tudor rebel. That will be available next weekend for members. After the suppression of Rhys, the main problem in Wales was border violence. Essentially, while you could make an argument for the liberties of the northern border given the continuing threat from Scotland... It was difficult to make the same argument for the Welsh marcher lordships. Oh, it wasn't difficult, it was impossible. In fact, now they were actually a cause of the violence, because let's say you were a 'er ne'er-do-well, a water, a bounder, cad, all that. All you had to do to escape the forces of law and order was hop over the border into the next lordship, and you were away and clear. The mass of jurisdictions led to a rolling wave of disorder. Cromwell's first hack at solving this lay in trying to use the Council of Wales to impose some order and uniformity. In 1534, Bishop Roland Lee was appointed as President of the Council, a much more effective man than the previous one, though due to make himself deeply unpopular with the harshness of his implementation of the law. But even with Lee in control, until the basic structure was dealt with, a proper solution was impossible. So, It was back to the same strategy. Sweep away the old jurisdictions and liberties that got in the way of the administration of royal power. Trust the gentry to manage the implementation of royal power. From 1536, Cromwell introduced a series of laws which transformed the position of Wales within Henry's kingdom. Although the laws were introduced in 1536 under Cromwell, Henry chose to veto parts of them until 1542. So although the dates may come after Cromwell's death, this is his work. Together, they've all become known as the Act of Union, but that's not what they were called at the time, though it's not a bad description. The Marcher Lordships were all swept away and turned into six counters. It's a simple statement. Given how long the Welsh marches have been with us, what a source of fun and games they have been, it really feels as though there should be some sort of fanfare. But hey, there's no room for sentiment here at the History of England, gentle listeners. Royal justice was now standard throughout Wales. Furthermore, it was now English justice. Everyone, Welsh, English or small furry animals, would now be subject to English law, though there was some small survival of Welsh law. And he'd have to speak English in courts and courts would be conducted in English. In fact, you could now forget the distinction between Welsh and English people. Legally, there was none. You could only tell the difference by the fact that one could play rugby properly and the other could not. 24 representatives would be sent to Parliament from Welsh counties, be elected or selected to sit in the House of Commons. All those members would be required to speak English too, and in fact, all office holders in Wales would be required to speak English. It was not banning the Welsh language, but if you were Welsh, you'd probably need to be bilingual. And just like Ireland, the Reformation Acts were all passed through. Well, Blow me down. I guess you can imagine that the scream of fury and outrage from Wales split the clouds, rattled the windows of Whitehall Palace, sending Henry VIII diving for cover under his bedclothes. The dissolution of Wales's 46 monasteries, removal of Welsh laws, requirement to speak the language of the filthy invader and oppressor Saxon. Come on, you're having a laugh. It'll be chaos. It's enough to make Phil Bennett turn in his grave. He's not in his grave actually yet. But the reason I mention him... For the uninitiated is his famous 1977 speech before the match against one of the home nations. Look what those bastards have done to Wales. They've taken our coal, our water, our steel. They buy our homes and live in them for a fortnight every year. What have they given us? Absolutely nothing. We've been exploited, raped, controlled, punished by the English and that's who you're playing this afternoon. That's most definitely our digression, but it's a great speech, isn't it? And part of the Six Nations law, so I thought I'd share it with you. If you've not watched Surely One of the Greatest Rugby Players of All Time, you can check out The Greatest Try of All Time on a YouTube link on my website and listen to Mr Bennett explaining his speech. If you're not a rugby fan, which is more than likely actually, well, you know, sorry and all. And, actually, the Welsh in 1534 to 1542 appear to have been a lot less upset than you might have thought. Only two monks refused to take the act of supremacy. The Pilgrimage of Grace in the North produces not a twitch from Wales, not a sidestep and certainly not a 60-yard jinking run to touch down in the corner. The thing is that unlike in Ireland, there was a strong and dynamic gentry class that wanted in, wanted the local power and influence to run and take control of their own counties and administration. Here was now the opportunity for power and self-advancement, a release from previous discrimination. No doubt there was plenty of upset at the inequity of the language at the thought of English laws, but in this case it seems to have been a price the Welsh, or at least the political classes in Wales, considered worth paying. The Reformation would take a little longer and have a path a little harder than in England, but it does not become associated with resistance to the English as it did in Ireland, did not become a symbol of oppression. That this was so owed a lot to the translation of the prayer book and Bible into Welsh later in the 16th century, and the ability, therefore, to evangelise. The Welsh in practice affected their own reformation in a way that made sense to them. I have gone on too long, far too long, so I need to finish. Don't forget to all become members. Every single one of you by tomorrow morning would be good, please. Next week is a week of empty nothingness, if you're not a member, like the sucking vacuum of space. And then there'll be an episode on something. Not entirely sure what at the time of writing. Might be Anne of Cleves. Might be something about Henry's medical conditions. Don't know. But until that time, thank you all for listening and for all your comments. It would of course make absolutely no sense without you. Good luck everyone and have a great fortnight.